The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Now, Britain and its Western allies are warning that people wanting to leave Afghanistan should stay away from Kabul airport due to a high threat of a terrorist attack. The British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said Afghans who want to flee to Britain may be better off trying to get to the border than to the airport. More than 10,000 people are still waiting to be evacuated. Labour shortages are affecting investment plans for a record number of companies. According to a quarterly survey by the UK's biggest business group, the CBI, consumer-facing companies, including bars and restaurants, have turned pessimistic about the outlook. Optimism was at minus 17% this month. That's right down from a reading of plus 47% back in May. That's the worst confidence number since the height of lockdown at the start of this year. Now, we're reaching a very interesting moment in Scottish politics. For the first time, the Green Party could get a role in government in the UK. Now, it's all to do with a deal worked out between the Scottish Greens and the SNP after the recent Holyrood election. Joining us now is Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Scottish Greens and MSP for the Lothian region. Lorna, thank you so much for being with us. Very good morning to you. Um, Let me ask you then first, what is the status of the discussions between yourselves and the SNP? As I understand, you're moving to a vote by your own party members, but just walk us through where we are in all this. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. So the Scottish government and uh, ourselves have announced last Friday a proposed cooperation agreement. It's something that's modelled a bit more on how the New Zealand Greens have a cooperation agreement with their government, where they have two ministers in the government, but the rest of their elected uh, MPs in New Zealand act as opposition party members. So they agree with the government on a a more narrow policy programme, but are still able to be effective opposition MPs. So we we have arranged something or proposed something similar with the Scottish government that we will, we've agreed a programme of policy that we would implement together if the deal is passed and a system for working together over the next few years while still being able to speak in opposition on areas where we disagree. Mm. So two uh, MSPs, and I believe you're, you're, you will probably be one of them, will be uh, ministers and part of the government, and the rest will not be. Is that is that correct, or is it? It's a bit, bit less straightforward. That's than that? correct. No, that that's that's correct. And uh, how will that actually work in in practice? How has it worked in New Zealand? Do you think it's a a, de- a decent model? The New Zealand Greens are now in their third term of Parliament in a in, a, in an arrangement with the government, and they. Uh, it works very well for them because it means on areas where they disagree with the government, For in our case that would be on things like oil and gas extraction, for example, that 
they are able to keep a unique green voice and still continue to campaign for those things that they feel very strongly about, while at the same time, on areas where they agree with the government, for example, on things like housing and transportation, they are able to work together to really get things done. Now, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure, that uh, in Westminster, certainly the history of coalitions recently has not been a happy one. The Liberal Democrats, of course, going into uh, coalition with the Tories and really getting the worst of the deal. In fact, many people feel it was an absolute catastrophe for that party. Isn't there a risk that in doing this, you'll be the obvious blame uh, area, the, the, the scapegoat if things go wrong, and you won't necessarily get credit when things go right? I think there are always risks in going into an arrangement like this. We are aware of the risks. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. And we really feel that it's important to be part of government to tackle those important issues. We have to accept some amount of risk to make significant changes to how Scotland operates. Things that are in the deal that we feel really strongly about that wouldn't happen without this deal are things like rent controls that will start to tackle the housing crisis in Scotland and really make a difference to millions of lives. On climate change, how quickly would you like Scotland to stop extracting oil from the North Sea? We have to follow the, we have to follow, follow the science, to, to quote a, a phrase we heard a lot during the pandemic, which is that in order to keep global heating to less than 1.5 degrees of warming, as we have all agreed to do so under the Paris Agreement, there can be no further exploration um, uh, and oil extraction. The, the International Energy Agency says so, the UN agency says so, the UN says so. It's not something that is, it, it's kind of, if we want to keep to that 1.5 degrees, it's almost not up for negotiation. So the answer is as quickly as possible. We need to find other energy sources. Luckily in Scotland, we have a absolute a wealth of renewable energy and offshore renewable energy in particular, we need to transfer to those sources of energy and we need to plan a just transition so that jobs are maintained and so communities have a functioning economy. So as quickly as we can, whilst still maintaining those things. Well, let's get specific on this, because there's the Cambo oil field off Shetland, a uh, new oil field uh, proposed to be drilled. It's not at all clear that Nicola Sturgeon is opposing it. You may be part of a government that effectively approves it. That, that's not what you want to do, is it? Well, there's a bit of inaccuracy there that the Scottish government doesn't have the power to approve or disapprove of that. That uh, licensing of oil fields is a matter retained to Westminster. Something that we would like as a pro-independence party is to have the power stop Cambo here, but it isn't something that's within our power at the moment. And just to clarify something you said about North Sea oil, I think you said that you'd like to see no further extraction. Does that mean stopping extraction as soon as possible? Well, absolutely. It means stopping it as soon as possible. So nobody's talking about turning off the tap tomorrow. That's absolutely not the case. But we need to figure out what as soon as possible is in terms of having a plan for a just transition. And that means knowing how many jobs we need to create. That means knowing how to support communities. Part of this bill has, I I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's, is it 500 million pounds, there's a significant sum of money to the northeast of Scotland, who we know will be on the sharp edge of this transition, of this energy transition. So we've got money and plans lined up to support the northeast of Scotland, in particular through this transition, to to a new renewable uh, basis for our energy. 
Lorna, isn't there a risk that you are being used in this, that you are a kind of fig leaf, if you like, for Nicola Sturge, and she wants to appear to, to burnish her green credentials ahead of COP26? What could be better than having the Green Party as part of her government? And you're, you're being used for her purposes, and when you're no longer useful, you'll be cast aside. I think that we're going into this agreement with, in the spirit of cooperation and grown-up politics. But we aren't going into it with our, with our eyes shut. We know that the SNP are a very effective political machine. The Scottish Greens have worked over the last 30 years to become a credible and respected party in our own right. We have had parliamentarians in the Scottish Parliament from its beginning. And the fact that we are being considered as a party of government is because we have practiced a kind of constructive problem-solving politics here. And we join green parties around the world in cooperating with governments. We see there's countries around the world, Germany, Ireland, New Zealand, where governments have brought in green parties because we're the ones with the expertise in this area. We understand it. We understand the solutions. And I think it's to the First Minister's credit that she has done this. We can already see a substantial change in direction of travel for the Scottish government. When Nicola Sturgeon wrote the letter to Boris Johnson the other week, asking him to reconsider the Campbell oil field. That is a substantial change of direction from the previous position of the government, which was maximum economic extraction. So having Greens in the room has already turned the dial, and we expect to be able to push it further. You uh, have seven MSPs. You had a pretty decent result in the Holyrood elections. Do you think that two ministerial... Oh, <laughs> well done. Eight. Do you think that having two ministerial posts is enough? Uh, reports say that you won't sit in the cabinet either. Yes, that's right. So we won't sit in the cabinet because we won't have collective responsibility for the entire program of government. We will only have collective responsibility in those areas that are covered under the under the agreement and the areas that are excluded from the. So the agreement includes these excluded areas we, in which we will not have collective responsibility on. So it wouldn't be appropriate for uh, cabinet secretaries to not share collective responsibility with the government. So this, this allows us to keep that space. Uh, and the agreement does allow for us to be in opposition on areas where the Green Party have a different view. And you would be backing a new independence referendum, wouldn't you? I mean, that is the thing that puts you and the SNP on the same side of the fence. I mean, that that was... That was, in, in some ways, not part of the agreement because we were already on the same side on, on that matter. So it is, yeah, it is covered in the agreement, but it wasn't something we had to negotiate because we already had a shared position on that. Under what circumstances would you want to walk away from this deal? As I say, we're entering it with the spirit of uh, cooperation and grown-up politics. We really want this to work. We think that this is genuinely transformational for Scotland, it's a step away from the, what we see as Westminster-style politics, which is about shouting across the aisle and trying to score points against the other team. This is something different, something we haven't seen in the UK before, where we're going to roll up our sleeves and instead of looking at where we have differences, we're looking at where we can where we can work together to improve public transport, to create jobs in renewable energy, to upgrade Scotland's homes so that everybody pays less on their on their heating bills, and so that we can reduce our carbon carbon emissions. This isn't about looking for problems; it's about looking for ways that we can get things done. In a word, are you going to win at the extraordinary general meeting on Saturday? I would never second-guess our members. This power is with them. I would hope that they support the agreement because I think that it will be genuinely transformational to the people of Scotland, but it is absolutely the power is in their hands.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making the news today. The impact of staff shortages in the car industry is already taking its toll. Research by the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders shows car production in the UK plummeted by almost 40% last month compared to July 2020. Just over 53,000 vehicles were made, thought to be largely down to a lack of staff caused by the pandemic and a global shortage of microchips. Well, a supply chain squeeze is hitting the NHS. The health service has temporarily stopped some blood testing because of a shortage of collection tubes. It's warning doctors to stagger regular testing. It comes after vial maker Beckton Dickinson warned of serious supply chain issues across the UK. And the NHS plans to start vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds from the first week schools go back. The Daily Telegraph is reporting children wouldn't need parental consent under the school's jabs programme. The timetable has been drawn up uh, even though the government advisers have so far not recommended such a rollout. Well, let's get the latest political polling now. A new survey by Kantar says that the public's view of the government's management of the coronavirus crisis has turned negative for the first time since February. They're also worried about the risk of a new wave of infections. Well, let's uh, speak to Craig Watkins. He's CEO of Kantar Public UK. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Uh, Craig, just talk us through what you found uh, in terms of confidence in the government's handling of the pandemic. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it was really interesting to see, as you mentioned, that um, the the kind of the the view of people has turned negative for the first time in terms of the government's pandemic handling. Um, and now, fifty percent think that the handling is very or fairly poor. I think if we we go back to February, we were in the midst of the second wave. We're in the third wave now, which is less severe. But there have, as you mentioned. Um, previous to, to, to this law, there are micro kind of issues that are coming up that might be driving this, such as the supply chain issues, the impact of the pandemic. We know there's confusion about future opening of schools. And outside of the well-established vaccine rollout, there don't seem to be any obvious recent wins for the government on the pandemic. And I suppose it, it, there's also concern about what happens next, Greg, because, I mean, the theory that there could be another big wave, maybe several, um, which at one point when we were all uh, very hopeful about vaccines, perhaps more hopeful than we are now, seemed unlikely. But now people are saying, well, there might be. There might be these breakthrough infections and actually uh, people might get the disease despite being vaccinated. We might be into another wave. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and we see that coming through with, you know, nearly two-thirds of people saying that they are, you know, concerned that there will be further waves of COVID after the summer, as we come back, with schools going back. We've seen the impact of big events such as boardmasters on kind of rises in infections. We see very, very strong support for the vaccination of, of teenagers and of 
kind of 12 to 15 year olds, which I think is really interesting. So there is a, um, a definitely a concern amongst the public that as there are stories about reinfections despite vaccination, that people are becoming concerned that we will see continuing waves of, of COVID. Can you just talk us through, give us a bit of background over the past uh, 18 months or so, if you can, about public opinion on on the pandemic? Because I remember seeing some polling early in the crisis that people were very supportive of the government, perhaps just because they felt they should get behind the government, even though uh, many people said the response was not that organised. But but public the mm-hmm. public was supportive of, of the government. How, how have things changed over that period? I think if you so if you go back to the to the beginning, yes, there was strong support because they were very clear. Um, there's a very clear direction from the government. We saw that then change as the messaging around once the kind of the, the, the first lockdown was starting to be eased, that the messaging was from a public perspective not as clear, becoming confused. Um, and so kind of support then was, was, was kind of softening. The vaccination programme has been seen very much as a success by the public, and that's that's been throughout the period. We then had the Christmas period with, well, you can, you know, there are kind of lockdown easing of restrictions, many people concerned, and then we we then very quickly entered the second wave, um, where, again, people um, being less positive about the kind of government's response um, because... It's 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 kind of more about well it's Christmas time. I think we what we see from the public is that they like to see kind of clear direction communicated that's based on the evidence. And it's interesting now, I suppose, Craig, moving to the point of of beyond it, or people being able to see into other issues, and of course the issue of climate change has really uh, become just by people's experience, seeing uh, mm. the pictures, of course, of the floods in Germany, the wildfires in various parts of the Mediterranean, and, of course, the Extinction Rebellion protesters now in London. It's come very much to the fore. We've got the COP26 coming up. What are the public's views on tackling climate change? How keen are people on that post-COVID? So what we're seeing is, is um, basically four in ten people thinking that it should be more of a priority. For, for, for government um, and only 14% thinking it should be less of a priority. What's quite interesting beneath that data is that um, contrary to what people might assume, you know, kind of generalising, is that actually the strongest support for making climate change more of a priority is seen amongst the older age groups and not amongst the younger age groups. And perhaps that's because the older age groups might be more invested in the futures of their children, their grandchildren. Um, younger generations um, would understandably be more have more immediate concerns about homes or jobs. I mean, that's a big generalisation, but it is... It's really interesting to see that there's a generational divide around um, the prioritisation of climate change. Mm, very interesting. T- talk us through some of the, uh, the other things which people are interested in, some of the things we used to talk about before COVID struck. Uh, what, what, what about um, uh, the NHS and crime and immigration, the, those, other, those other key issues? So what we're, we're seeing in terms of those as, as, as priorities, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're still important um but it's interesting as i mentioned those are 
um, more those those tend to kind of appear more as a priority for those age groups um, that are younger, be people entering the the job market, be people who are likely to have um, younger families, um, and and again, is is that because for for those age groups in particular, these are much more immediate issues um, that face them day to day as opposed to the kind of the, the longer-term issues that something like climate change um, represents. And I suppose, Craig, one of the most important things for most people, most families certainly, is their household economic impact, how well they're doing, particularly, I guess, coming out of the COVID period. A lot of people, perhaps, their jobs somewhat in question, but on the other hand, people are saying not many people are signing up for, for jobs. There's a labour shortage, mm. if anything. So just walk us through what people are feeling about their own personal income. Again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting split here. So when you ask people about the future, um, you know, looking forward into, into the winter, um, looking ahead to when furlough um, stops, looking ahead, how will the economy be doing next year? Um, people are kind of quite negative. Um, and, and we've seen a, a, a marked kind of decrease in the number of people, now down to about a third, um, of people who think that the economy will be doing better in 12 months' time. However, if you then ask them, has your personal impact, uh, has your personal income been impacted um, by the virus, or how, compared to last month, um, are you able to meet your, your, your kind of your bills, your budget? That's becoming more of a positive picture. And actually, we now have the highest um, number since the, uh, the beginning of the year, six in ten people saying that their personal income hasn't been impacted. So there is this dichotomy between if you ask people what's happening today, we see an increasingly positive picture. If we ask people about the future, they're much more uncertain. And I think that's just a characterization of, of the pandemic, is that it's made our future lives very, very uncertain because things keep changing. Um, which again is, is a kind of an interesting impact flowing through then on on, on public opinion. Hmm. And digging down into the party politics, where do the uh, parties stand now in terms of, of voter support? So the biggest change that we've seen is that um, the Conservatives have, have dropped significantly um, since last month, um, down to thirty-seven percent. That's a drop of seven points, um, which is significant. I think what we have to to um, kind of realise on that, so our, our field work um, was done over over the weekend. So we spoke to the public over the weekend. Um, Afghanistan could well be playing um, a part in 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 that impact, as well as you know we've seen the kind of the drop in the approval rating for the government's handling of, of the pandemic. Afghanistan is being played out, you know, through through the media on our television sets. Um, so that's a big drop. Um, what we've seen, though, is that it's kind of spread across other parties. It's not. It's not that Labour are picking up um, those those um, those kind of voters in terms of the latest polling. It is spread across Labour, Lib Dems, Greens. So I, I think it's it will be interesting to see as as we kind of go forward as we enter party conference season whether or not this becomes a more sustained. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.